Hello, listeners. We invite you to sharpen your swords and your minds and join hosts Sam and Clay each week as they delve into the historical context, leadership, and tactics surrounding significant battles and campaigns throughout time. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Art, Art of War. War. Alright, welcome back everybody. My name's Sam. And I'm Clay. And this is The Art of War. And today, we're going to be embarking on a journey through a more current battle, a more current war, Mm -hmm. which is a lot different from what we've been previously doing. Yeah, switching up. And you know, I guess we've kind of sort of been thinking about this, how to structure the seasons of the podcast. And I mean, it feels like almost naturally we've fallen into some kind of way where we're covering you know, more of an ancient campaign and then, you know, going to medieval times and then more modern times. So I feel like that's a pretty good structure for us to move forward with. Yeah, that actually, yeah, that's a, that's a good idea. Yeah, but I mean, if any of the listeners have any opinions, you know, please just reach out to us and let us know what you guys think. Yeah, like pretty much any battle or, or war campaign, anything that you want us to talk about, we're willing to talk about, you know, like if, if we haven't covered it, because that's the whole fun of this. It's just researching and finding out all these interesting and crazy battles and stories yes so now we're headed to the late late 19th century going into the 20th century right yep yep and it's uh it's kind of a transition from the old way of fighting to the new kind of concept of fighting with small soldier groups small detachments of of, uh, units and pretty still pretty interesting yeah but i think this is a really good example too because you have kind of like an outdated army style on one side and then a much more modernized army style on the other side. And you see how much more effective the modern army is. And yeah, so we're going to get into it. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about the First Sino-Japanese War. And chiefly, we're going to be talking about the Battle of Xinguan. Yes. Which is the first major land battle. Actually, we're going to be also talking about the naval battle of Pongdo, which happens pretty much the exact yeah, same time. It's pretty much the same day and precedes the, the battle. So we're just going to yeah. tie that in this as well. So I guess before we get started talking about the actual battle, we kind of have to set up the context of what right. the world looked like at the time, who the fighting factions were, etc. Right. So we're over in Asia now. So we're on you know different side of the world. We're leaving Europe for a bit. And principally, now we're focusing on Japan, which Japan has at this time just recently undergone a huge reformation, the the Meiji Restoration, right? A huge campaign to unite all of Japan and really an aggressive modernization campaign where they adopting a lot of Western technology, especially on the military front and um, ideas in that way, right? Yeah, and it's funny because prior to the 1800s, even in like the beginning of, of the 1800s, there was a huge, huge push from everyone pretty much in Japan to stay isolationist. They had no interest in foreign countries because they're one of those interesting little areas like Australia and, mm-hmm. and New Zealand, Japan, that they're they're out in the middle of nowhere. They're not very close to many areas, and they have all the resources they need to just chill right they don't need anyone else's assistance so up until the 18 like 40s 1850s they really didn't have much diplomatic relations with any country at all they occasionally made ventures into china korea for military you know uh, possibilities but they never actually cared about interacting with other countries and then in 1854 
this guy named Matthew Matthew P, uh, C. Perry, who was a uh, general of, of the Navy right. for the U.S., comes into port at Tokyo in Japan and says pretty much, you guys are going to open up your borders and you're going to start trading with us. Because at the time, Asian markets were like a huge interest to America and Japan right. so this refused. Is, yeah, well, yeah, uh, just some context. This is, you know, the same time that, you know, the opium wars happened with China and Britain forcing China to open up trade that way, right? So yeah. Asia is really kind of this untapped gold mine of trade resources that a lot of Western nations are trying to harness. Yeah, and America sees Japan as one of the most important, also because it's it's relatively the closest uh, territory that they can get to from California, right? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, they can they can launch a, a trade route there first before they would go to the Chinese markets or the, the Korean markets. And it's funny because the whole situation was Matthew Perry comes into port. He tells them, you're going to start trading with us. They say, no, get out of here. He comes back a year later, does the exact same thing. He says, this time I'm not leaving. You're going to trade with me. And they continue to refuse. And then he's in a, a metal warship, right, from the 1850s mm-hmm. from America. And he gets completely encircled by the Japanese Navy. But the Japanese Navy at the time, was just a bunch of wooden galleys and sloops. They had no artillery on them, and they were pretty much all they had at their disposal was, you know, swordsmen on boat and and a few archers. So Perry can do whatever he wants, and he just starts shelling and destroying a bunch of buildings on the coast of Tokyo until they eventually agree to his negotiations. And after that, they sign a treaty with him that gives america sole rights to trade with japan Mm -hmm. it's pretty it's pretty hilarious because they they can't do anything with their entire standing army against this one ship aggressive negotiations yeah it was called gunboat diplomacy because it was basically like hey we we are a a superior technology like military technology you can't do anything about it do whatever we say and that's what happens yeah but it worked it works very much so. And then, and then it kind of opens up the eyes to the Japanese people that, like, they are really, really far behind in a lot of aspects. Yeah. Like, societally, technologically, everything, agriculturally, just their entire system is 200, 300 years behind the West. Yeah. So that spurred a very aggressive modernization campaign. And it was very effective, right? So Japan pretty much restructured its entire military force from like the naval force all the way to the army they brought in british naval officers to oversee the development of a japanese imperial navy and the british um, advisors like trained the japanese naval commanders and then japan even sent sailors to britain to train there so they have a very well-trained navy and these connections they've had with a lot of the western powers are really helping them become much more powerful than they used to be yeah and it's you know the one thing we need to include in here is that meiji emperor meiji is probably one of the most important individuals in japanese history because he yeah he does so much for the country in such a short period of time it's incredible because he in 1866 the japanese people stage a, a revolution to overthrow the shogun who before the shogun was basically just like a military leader who had complete control of japan but a bunch of the territories and provinces in Japan were still run by these people called daimyos, and they were they were essentially uh, either like the aristocrats of the area, 
or they were military leaders that controlled vast swaths of territory, but they, they kind of listened to what the Shogun said. Mm-hmm. But Japan at the time also had a, like a huge issue with like a caste system. So peasants were peasants. You could never be more than a peasant. A samurai was a samurai. Yeah. You're the highest part. You, you get all of the wealth and all of, all of the advantages. And this, this guy, Meiji, after the revolution happens and he gets in, instituted into power because he's part of the line of emperors that had existed hundreds of years before, he eradicates the caste system that quick. It's gone. He removes the titles of samurai and daimyo, and he, he gets the daimyos to agree to give all of their territory and lands to Meiji, and he's able to consolidate his power and centralize the entirety of Japan. So he's now created this fractured, you know, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years prior, Japan, there had been multiple attempts by all these different military leaders to try to, you know, bring together Japan, but they could never do it. And this guy, at a very young age, in the span of five years, is able to get the entirety of Japan to come together. And it's, it's just wild. And yeah. he does all these insane industrial pushes and they become the chief exporter of silk and silk goods. And they make a ton of money over 20, 30 years. Right. And not just, you know, these advancements he's made for the economy and the technology, but the society as well, because the almost, I guess the nationalism that is in Japan now is very high. Like all the Japanese citizens are behind everything Japan does. And we really see it throughout this war, how there's so much support for anything that Japan does by their own citizens, which is really interesting to see. And you see that in the art and culture too, is there's pretty much every battle in this war has a painting that came from Japan depicting the battle and celebrating Japanese victories. Yeah. And you see them prior to the emperor being reinstated, they have, you know, they have, an interest and a love for their shogun, but not like a deep, a deep uh, uh, belief in them. And then after this period of time, the Meiji Reformation, they become just unbelievably loyal to the emperor. And you see that in World War Two and World War One, where they're extremely uh, in favor of the emperor. They see him as like a essentially like a god emperor. Like he's he's actually divine, right? Yeah. And that's all because of this. Of because of Meiji, it's it's wild how how much he does for Japan. Yes, yeah. But so on the other hand, we have the other major Asian power, which is of course China, and China is now under the rule of the Qing Dynasty, and it's had kind of a similar path. They've had you know a modernization campaign that was pretty successful in China at the time as well, mainly focusing on harnessing the Western technology to strengthen China's military. And this came after a similar instance with Japan because China got pretty pretty uh, decimated in the opium wars by the superior Western forces. So that was their wake-up call. And they had this modernization campaign, so they're doing the same thing. But that brings into play what is at the core of this war, which is Korea, right? Yeah, and, and it's it, one thing that kind of differs between China and Japan is that China was trying to bring in industrialization. They're trying to open up trade with all these different powers. They're trying to take Western values and incorporate them into their society. They're trying to use all these technological advances to make themselves a, power, a powerhouse. But Japan understood the fact that if they wanted to create national pride, if they wanted to create a society that was centralized and work together, they needed to shuck all of these ancient cultural values, essentially like, you know, the caste system and all these things that kept P- 
people poor, kept them at the lower rungs of society, and gave them no hope, right? Mm -hmm. They needed to get rid of those things. But China, being a dynasty, not having really a transition of power, they still keep their old values, and they never really get rid of the caste system. Right. And that results in, even though they are successful in a lot of these aspects, the population who is majorly peasants, over 400 million people at the time, like 90% of them are peasants, they're still upset with their situation in life, and they don't have this profound loyalty to their to their government. Yeah. So even while they're they're growing and they're they're becoming powerful, they're having these constant rebellions all throughout the period where they have to keep quelling them. They keep ha- keep having to get support from foreign countries to help in these rebellions. And and yeah, in Korea, Korea is pretty similar to them too. Or too aren't they? Yes. Yeah. Korea is pretty similar to China. Well, Korea is almost sort of like a vassal state of China at this point in time, uh, just because China is so powerful and pretty much, you know, borders them on, but, uh, yeah, Korea is not really undergone a drastic modernization and, um, Japan recognizes the importance of the Korean peninsula to Japan because Korea is right next to Japan and Japan's point of view if Korea is weak, then that is a danger to Japan as well because they have this weak neighbor that could be, if they have enemies that attack, it could be a weakness to Japan. And they also see Korea as an opportunity for greater trade because Korea has a lot of ore and iron reserves. So Japan has an interest in almost um, overturning the current Korean government, which is like an emperor-style government, a dynasty, and imposing a more modern, pro-Japanese, pro-modernization government. Yeah, and it's funny because China's looking at the same thing. The, the, the since, like you said, uh, Korea is a, a vassal state of China. Uh, Korea initially goes to China for all of their advice, all mm-hmm. all of their needs and supports, and China advises them uh, along the same lines of what Japan wants for them. They tell them pretty much, you need to take a more modern standpoint. You need to open up. You need to start contacting these Western powers and signing diplomatic relationships with them in order to use them as a way to kind of like push yourself into the industrial period, right? And they do that. They 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 agree with that that concept, and they they uh, contact America, and America comes in. They try. They they're about to sign this treaty, and in the treaty, it pretty much says that. Korea is an independent state, and China's not okay with that at all, because right. China still, you know, wants to identify them as a vassal. So China condemns the, the signing of it. America gets all upset, and then for about two years, they, they keep negotiating up. And then in the end, Korea agrees to, just in, in, the, in the delegation, deem themselves a vassal state. So this now basically secures the fact that Korea is a vassal to China, and they're in con- they're, they're not in control, and they're not independent, and China really owns them. And uh, they go, after, after the first initial negotiations with America, they go and they talk with Great Britain, Germany, Italy, France, and Russia, and they all get these same diplomatic deals, and they're getting mm-hmm. a huge amount of support and education from these foreign countries along lines of military and technology. So like all these, these three powers, they're all kind of like vying to be the next great world power, right? right? Cause they all have the same assets at their disposal and they're all basically taking the same route. And that kind of is problematic whenever two of those factions are in heavy 
they have heavy distaste for each other, and they always have. Right. Which is China and Japan. Yeah, it's almost a little bit like a Cold War scenario at this point between China and Japan, where tensions are pretty high, but it hasn't really erupted into all-out war yet, and... You know, Korea is almost kind of caught in the middle of these two superpowers in the East. Yeah, that's always how it's been. Because there's been, I think there's three or four times throughout the history of Japan and Chinese relations where Japan tried to invade China to some extent. And that the battlefield was always Korea, right? Because that's their landing ground. That's the area that kind of, you know, both territories don't have complete ownership of. But yeah, that's, and so they, they have... They have interests that align, but they don't want either power to get stronger than the other. And, you know, you like, you see in a lot of wars and, and battles throughout history that the first thing that really sets off the wars is something kind of trivial, right? But they want, because they wanted a war. They yeah. wanted to start a war, but they have to have a reason to start a war. And what's the reason that the war started? So for this one, there there's a few reasons so we're we're gonna take place in 1894 now but so 10 years before 1894 there was an attempted coup in korea to overthrow the ruling royal family and this coup was orchestrated by pro-japanese korean reformers that wanted to reform the korean government get away with the casteism uh casteism lift up the peasants and you know basically reinvent korea It was unsuccessful, the coup was, but that was just kind of it. But then 10 years later, the leader of the coup that orchestrated it, Kim Ok-kyun, was lured to Shanghai in China and then assassinated there. And his body was taken back to Korea, quartered, which so it was ripped apart and then displayed in Korea as a warning to rebels. And so this was already making Japan, you know, pretty angry because they see this as a direct affront to Japan. But then another rebellion occurred in Korea. This was this was more of a peasant rebellion, but it started as a um a rebellion from this religion that developed in Korea called the uh the Donghak religion and it really um opposed western culture and valued equality of all people. But they were heavily persecuted, and then they got peasants on their side, and that led to rebellion. But when this rebellion started, Korea asked China to come help. And so China sent in military reinforcements, which further angered Japan. Yeah, Japan said that if they sent, if China sent any troops into uh, Korea, they were required to inform Japan of the troop movements because Korea is kind of, you know, interest to both japan and china and And, well i think they did yeah have like a treaty that did state that after the failed coup yeah it was it's like the it's it's got some some interesting name but they yeah they were supposed to inform japan that the the troops moved into korea but they didn't and so korea or japan also sees the movement of these troops as like maybe some insidious things happening like maybe they're they're moving troops in here to you know, take control of Korea and maybe move after Japan. So they send troops. They send equal number of troops into Korea to match the Chinese. Right. But, you know, it almost seems as if Japan is definitely looking for a fight because when their forces arrive into Korea, 
the leaders of the Donghawk Rebellion lay down their arms, actually. They pretty much surrender because they see that both armies are coming to Korea and they don't want a war to erupt in their country, so they surrender to try to help ease the tensions. But it doesn't work, and all the leaders are executed. And then the Japanese forces move and actually capture the royal palace at Seoul and capture the Korean king, Gojong. And it's also funny because the, the first attempted coup, the, the Gapson coup, they captured the same guy. <laughs> yeah. So King Gojin is or Gojong is always the the target. But yeah, they 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 move pretty quickly because, like we said, they've been posed for military conflict this entire time. Right. So they see this as an opportunity to really start a war, and they quickly move into to Korea with about eight thousand troops, and they take the city of Seoul, which is now the capital of of uh, South Korea, and they capture the king. And they now instate a Japanese like military leadership, very pro-Japanese, that mm-hmm. orders the complete expulsion of all Chinese to get them out as quickly right. as possible. <laughs> they, they're now basically saying they own Korea, yeah. right? They remove the Korean king, they instate their own government in Korea, and then that government says that Japan can remove all Chinese forces from Korea. So. Yeah, yeah. And they do it very, very soon, like right after uh, they take the king. It's like, all right, we now control all of China or all of Korea. Get out, China. Uh, This is ours now. And of course, China's like, "Uh, no, this is our vassal. What are you guys doing? Right. So they start setting up uh, defensive fortifications all throughout uh, Korea. And whilst that's happening, they've been moving uh, a large portion of their navy towards the coast of the eastern coast of, of Korea to try to make a a pathway for reinforcements to make it really difficult for Japan to move more north and maybe take more territory in Korea. But unfortunately, the Japanese, they were ready for that. They, they saw that plan in motion and they had mm-hmm. their navy set up in the same location. Yeah. So yeah, the Japanese navy was already mobilized and... The city they have their sights set on first is this important port city called Asan, which is on the, it's facing China on the Korean peninsula. So it was a very important port for China to get troops in by boat. And Japan knew that this city was pretty key to China. And so they were already moving to establish their naval blockade of that and kind of take that port city over first. And so then... Right after they've now said they need the complete expulsion of all the Chinese, they launch an attack on that city from the land, and they also plan to uh, blockade the port at the same time. But the two naval forces come into conflict with each other, whilst the actual land forces are also coming into contact with each other. And also it's important to mention that the land forces of the Chinese at Asan, they are heavily fortified because they knew that this was going to be the target of the Japanese. So mm-hmm. in preparations, they've constructed a ton of trenches, a bunch of uh, mounds all around the trenches to stop artillery fire and to stop an easy an easy pathway to the trenches. And they've also uh, flooded all of the rice fields surrounding the city to make it very difficult for the troops that are you know covered in military equipment with guns on their backs to really get through. And, uh, yeah, they, that doesn't really do much because the Japanese strategies doesn't care about their fortifications at all. Right, right. So, yeah, so the land forces for Japan are moving from Seoul, the capital, 
So they're moving. It's not actually too far, but yeah, they have to move south to the to the city to face the Chinese forces. And meanwhile, the Chinese forces they are expecting reinforcements from sea, um, from from their navy. Uh, but the reinforcements never come because the Japanese navy forces intercept the Chinese ships and sink them. But it, it's pretty interesting battle, honestly, a pretty interesting navy battle because there was. An initial boat sighting where the Japanese Navy ships spot different Chinese ships that are kind of patrolling and then they get into a battle and then they see the other Chinese ships with the actual army reinforcements going towards the bay. And so they break off from their current battle to go engage the other Chinese reinforcement ships, but the uh, they're not really Chinese ships. They're just like British ships that China chartered pretty much to move their troops. So the captain of the ship is a British captain and he doesn't want to, to, you know, get into a Navy battle. So they actually just jump off the ship, him and his crew. (laughs) And the Chinese forces are like shooting at them in the water because they just abandoned them. And then, so a lot of the British sailors die in the water getting shot by the Chinese troops, but then the Japanese ships come and sink the remaining vessels, pretty much killing all of the Chinese reinforcements. So it was, yeah. this is really kind of a random battle that wasn't really planned, but uh, ended up working in Japan's favor. I guess that's the benefit of a blockade. You just kind of attack whatever, you know, and just don't let anything through. And that's kind of, that's what they do. Yeah. You just attack the first boat they see. And the only hope that the Chinese really had was those reinforcements. And they also needed their flank secured, which those reinforcements would essentially do when they came in. But because they all died in a naval battle, there was no reinforcements at all. And unbeknownst to the Chinese, their reinforcements oncoming. And the Japanese general... Oshima Yoshimasa knows that there's no reinforcements coming because of the naval battle. So he launches a night attack on the Chinese defensive uh, fortifications. And he tried, he, he makes his strategy to, at night, there's not a lot of light, so they can't really see the attacking forces coming in. And he sends a one company of engineers and four companies of infantry towards the front of the Chinese uh, fortifications to kind of be a distractionary army, right? So they think they're being attacked from the front, so they're dedicating all the resources to pushing back the enemies at the front. They're not paying attention to the rear. And then while that's all occurring, the rest of the force, another nine to ten companies, plus the artillery and cavalry, they're crossing a river which is behind. It kind of wraps around uh, Asan called the Ansong River. And they just encircle the Chinese. And after about, it's, it says it's about two Two to three hours from three o'clock in the morning yeah. to five o'clock in the morning. There's some, you know, pretty heavy fighting, but eventually the Chinese realize that their their situation is hopeless, so they surrender. And in overall, they don't. Neither side really loses that many troops. It's not a bloody, bloody battle, but the Japanese do lose about eighty-two, and that's all from the front. Yeah. And then the Chinese lose about five hundred. Yeah, lose about five hundred, and so this. This like land battle, it, you know, we were talking about Asan, but it takes place a little bit away from Asan at uh, Songwan, which is kind of just like a little, I don't know, what would you say, defensive position in front yeah. of the port city. And that's where this main battle takes place. You know, they were waiting, the Chinese 
we're waiting for the reinforcements, but the numbers are pretty equal at this time, right? The Japanese forces yeah. is like 4,000 troops and the Chinese forces is a little less than that. But um, the Japanese tactic was just um, much better than the Chinese had anticipated. And so it uh, ended up the Chinese losing and routing. And they actually, the remaining soldiers that weren't killed fled to Asan, the port city, which is supposed to be, you know, heavily fortified. But right after this battle, because there was a bunch of chaos and low morale along, among the Chinese troops, the Japanese forces and Major General Oshima Yoshimasa just pushed towards Asan and were able to take it really easily. And then the remaining Chinese forces retreated to Pyongyang up north. Yeah, and that's that's really bad for China yeah. because that port city is extremely important yes. for getting a secure foothold in Korea as it's their main entryway from the sea into Korea. And also, uh, the Chinese were hoping that they were going to be able to launch a counterattack on Seoul and, you know, help the King, uh, King Gojin escape or reinstate him into power, etc. Yeah. But now that they've lost Asan, they have really two layers to get through, and it's even more difficult. And this also gives the Japanese a staging ground to move their troops in from, from the ocean, right? Right. So it's super bad. Yeah, this for the beginning of the war. Yeah, this is a very key victory for Japan because at you know prior to this, Japan's forces were only at Seoul, and China had control of Asan, which was south of Seoul, and Pyongyang, which was north of Seoul. So their plan was to just fortify both of those positions, um, give troop reinforcements by sea to Asan, and then troop reinforcements by land to Pyongyang, launch a dual pincer attack on Seoul, and then pretty much push out the Japanese forces that way. But by losing this key port city, they've lost the entirety of the southern and central Korean peninsula to Japan. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting to note that in previous instances where um, Japan tries to invade into Korea and, and China's the chief fighting force that's repelling them, the same strategy is kind of used where they, they fortify and then they have like, you know, uh, some, some form of attack to kind of just force them closer and closer to the coast. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, over time, Japan kind of just runs out of resources. They run out of manpower because Japan, in comparison to China, China at the time had about 400 million citizens. Right. Japan at the time had probably about 10 to 20 million. They're, they're very small, right? They might have all this industrial power, but they're much smaller than their, their counterparts. So when they would launch these attacks, when they'd be losing 82 troops, that's a lot more to them than it is to China. Right, so they can't, they couldn't maintain these long, these long, you know, campaigns, these long, you know, uh, battles that just was purely over small portions of territory being gained or lost. Right, because you know, you think about the entire Japanese military is only a hundred and twenty to maybe two hundred thousand troops yeah. in total, and then the entire Chinese military is you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of troops. Yeah, I think at that time there was their main fighting force, which was like the most important, the Huai, Huai, I think it is, army, which was about forty five thousand, and then there was about six hundred thousand troops that were just purely untrained infantry, right. and there was about six hundred thousand conscripted conscripted troops. So they had like a standing army of about one point four million ish, mm -hmm. right? And Japan's got much smaller numbers yeah. than that, even though Japan's. So, better trained but yeah sometimes yeah, way way better yeah. trained sometimes numbers is 
yeah, I mean, on that scale, is uh, it's pretty important. Yeah, so China kind of needs to take a new approach because they're not able to really keep the the Japanese at bay long enough to make them maybe just sue for peace or something or sign some treaty to get them out of there. Because now the Japanese are just slapping them, slapping them around, and they're able to take all this territory and not really care about like the logistics of having to keep these troops fed and all the resources delivered to them. Because this is the 19th century, and they have you know steam-powered boats, right. and it's a lot easier to transport people back and forth between Japan and Korea. Yeah. So China has to reevaluate what they're going to do. Meanwhile, Japan has its sights set on Pyongyang as its next city that it wants to take in order to secure more of the Korean Peninsula. So that's going to be the next major offensive that Japan's looking to undertake. Yep. And that, you know, it's it's pretty interesting first battle. Usually you don't see like the first battle being so instrumental to the the whole foundations of the campaign, yeah. but you know, it was it was a pretty small battle, but it was very important in setting up yes. the war. And it, it was also, I think it's just pretty interesting how you had, like, the coinciding naval battle and land battle. And it wasn't really planned that way at all. Yeah. And it just kind of happened. And it, it, it was really happened in the favor of Japan. Yep. And I mean, I guess we got to give it a rating. It's kind of hard to give it a rating because there's two battles. Yeah, well... And not a lot not a lot that happens. I mean, I, the, whole, the whole shooting the British soldiers in the water, you know, that... A good factor yeah. to, to the rating. <laughs> I yeah, I don't know. Reading that was just funny. How the the British captain was like, "I'm out," <laughs> and he just jumped yeah, ship. I'm not, I'm not part of this. I was just transporting people. I didn't know they were soldiers. Yeah. See you later. Uh, but I don't know. I think we probably have to give it to um, probably General Oshima Yoshimasha's uh, flanking maneuver because it was it was pretty uh, ingenious i think to do the faint forward attack and yeah. then flank in the middle of the night with the main troop mm-hmm. yeah that's, i think you could give him some like some some i don't know some apple bacon apple, apple bacon. applewood smoked bacon yeah that's pretty good in our rating system it's decent yeah, it's, that's know, middle of the he, road he, he got four thousand troops and he lost 82 right yeah it's pretty efficient use he, of uh, his resources yeah. They did it quickly. Did it in two hours too. Yeah. And they, yeah, okay, that's another fact. They were in trenches, right? That's true. They had mounds of dirt around them and a bunch of fortifications, barbed wire and stuff. And they also had and a ton to... of supplies and like artillery yeah, there too. Yeah, and he the did Chinese it in two horses. hours. Yeah, that's pretty. All right, yeah, that's a good rating. Applewood smoked bacon. Yep, I'm happy with it. Yeah. All right. Well, I wonder what we're gonna give the next battle. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get into it next week. Um, yeah thanks for listening guys in the meantime if you have any comments or anything like that reach out to us on social media we're always very happy to hear from fans so of course makes our days yeah. better any comment no matter if it's good or bad just it's good to hopefully good, to good but yes hopefully good <laughs> but yeah make sure if you if you have any campaign battle anything you want us to talk about just let us know because we'll, we'll cover it yep but all right yeah all right Check us out next week. Yep. Thanks, everybody. Hi, listeners. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. And if you are, make sure to follow us on all of our social medias. You can find our social medias in the description on our Spotify page. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to check out our sister podcast, Gray Skies. Each week, the host, Eliza, talks about a different national disaster that happened in recent history. And hopefully we're going to be able to collaborate with her. Yeah. So look forward to that. Bye.